Good morning, and a very warm welcome to you all to Ladywell Baptist Church and to our service of worship at the beginning of this new week. As we start a new week, a reminder to you that we have our prayer meeting on at half past seven on Wednesday night on Zoom. That will be going through Matthew's Gospel and our Bible study and praying for our church, our community, and for our world. And so we would love it if you would come along and participate in that. Uh, you don't need to be able to get online for that. You can phone in. So if you don't have internet access, please do feel you can still participate in that. It would be great if you could be there for that. As we prepare ourselves to worship just now, though, we hear these words from Micah uh, chapter 7. Right at the end of chapter 7, we read, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And as we begin our time of worship, this past week that ends today as we begin afresh a new week has perhaps not been the week that you would have desired it to be. There have been struggles, there have perhaps been frustrations, there have been causes for grief or for upset. And as we come to worship this morning, how on earth do we deal with all of that and still come and praise God and and worship Him as is fit and right for our perfect holy God? Well, Micah gives us uh, something of an answer here, that God pardons our iniquities. He deals with all of our failures, with the sin that marks all of our lives. And as we come to him and cast ourselves upon Christ, ask for his forgiveness, he treads our iniquities, our sins, our shortcomings and failings underfoot. They're cast into the depths of the ocean. They can't ever come back. They're gone. They are done. And he shows faithfulness to us. He says to Jacob and to Abraham, into whose family we have been adopted through Christ's sacrifice on the cross and in his resurrection. And so we stand in a place of tremendous privilege this morning. Whatever your week has been like, you can know that God welcomes you into his presence. He longs for you to come into his presence and to know him to experience his love and his grace and his mercy in the expectation this will cause a desire for us to worship him, but will lead us on into the rest of the week, will make us able to go on living for him, regardless of what we might face over the coming seven days. So I want to encourage you as we come to this time of worship this morning that God desires your presence and he has sent his own son to be your saviour so that you can come into his presence and praise his name and be equipped for your life this coming week. As we enter into this time of worship, we're going to sing in just a moment that Jesus paid it all and all to him we owe. He has made it possible for us to be in this place worshiping God this morning. But before we do that, we're going to pray together. So let's pray. Gracious Lord, we come before you this morning. And Lord, it is a joy for us to know that we do not simply gather in our own homes or in the building here in Cedar Bank. And Lord, do so simply because we have a shared interest in the Christian faith, a shared interest in the Bible. Lord, a common desire to to bless our fellow citizens here in West Lothian. All of those things are true, but that is not why we gather this morning. We gather to worship you because you are our God. As Micah sings uh, your praise at the end of his prophecy, Lord, he reminds us that you have come and taken our sins and cast them into the heart of the ocean. There is no return for them. They are forgiven. And Lord, we rejoice that in your eyes they are forgotten. And so, Lord, we pray that we would know your presence, that we would experience your love and your grace and your mercy in our time together this morning, and that that would be the grounds of our worship, that our joy in knowing forgiveness in Jesus and freedom from sin would burst forth into sung praise 
and Lord, in prayer and in our humility as we submit to your word. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would truly be your people, your family, together this morning. And Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless us together. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to forgive us for those failures, Lord, for the sin of this past week. And Lord, that you would prepare us for a week of faithful service to you as we begin today and look forward to the coming uh, days of this week that lie before us. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be with each member of our fellowship here in Ladywell in particular, and you would be especially with those who are shut in. Lord, those in care homes and in nursing homes, those um, who are shielding and Uh, Father, haven't seen uh, the rest of the fellowship for a great many months. Lord, we pray that you would make your presence especially known by those folks. And Lord, may you bless them and remind them that they are still part of your family, the body of Christ, who worships you this morning. Lord God, we come before you and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing our series in Genesis this morning. We are uh, fairly moving through the book. We are certainly well into the second half of the book as we begin to focus uh, on the life now of Joseph. We've had Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and so the remainder of our time in this year will be um, drawing out lessons from the life of Joseph, a very well-known story, and yet one that we perhaps don't consider as deeply as we ought to because we simply focus on those things that we remember, uh, whether it be from television programs or from musicals or uh, whatever it might be. So we do pray that you would, as we read through the life of Joseph, hear the story afresh and be challenged and encouraged by it. And so we're going to read this morning from Genesis chapter 37. And there we read, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said, Go now and see if it's well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we'll see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. 
that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is God's word, and we give thanks to him for it this morning. Let's come together in prayer for our church, our community, and for the wider world. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, loving Heavenly Father, we come before you as your family, your children, this morning. We're reminded by Jesus in the New Testament that when a child comes and asks his parent for help, His parents help, listen, understand, and guide. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that we come before you and you are happy to hear our prayers. Lord, you do not weary of us coming before you. And so, Lord, in this service, we come before you yet again. And Lord, we praise your name for your greatness and your goodness, your majesty and your mercy towards us. And Lord, we also come and ask that you would be with us in this time, that you would set us apart for you, not just in this service of worship, but in this coming week, that we might be faithful to you in every area and aspect of our lives. Lord God, we need your strength. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to die in our place, that we might be free from the constraint of sin, to love you and to serve you. We thank you that you have filled us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we might know you, we might read your word and understand it, and we might be strengthened to live it out. And so, Lord, we ask, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you would meet with us this week and enable us to follow in the way that you have set before us. Lord God, we pray for our whole congregation and think particularly of those in our fellowship who are struggling at this time. Lord, we have a number of people who are sick, who need healing and restoration, but much more, Lord, need to know your presence so that whatever happens over the coming weeks and months, whether healing comes or not, they would know that they belong to you and that you have promised never to leave them or forsake them, regardless of how difficult their circumstances may be. Lord, we lift those before you in our fellowship who particularly need to know your presence at this time, for they are truly struggling. Lord, we pray for the families of those who are sick, who watch and feel frustrated, feel there is nothing that they can do. And Lord, we ask that you would bless them richly also, that they would know your presence that they would know the comfort that they bring, the support that they give, and understand the significance of that ministry to their dearest in their families. Lord God, we ask that as a fellowship we would gather around those who are sick and struggling at this time. 
It can be difficult for us to know during this pandemic how we can bless those in our church, but we thank you that we can simply make a phone call, write a letter, send flowers, whatever it might be, and we thank you so much, Lord, that you give us creativity to express our love towards one another. And so, Lord, we ask that as a fellowship we would truly love one another at this time. Lord God, we pray especially for those uh, who are in care homes as well. Lord, we ask that you would enable us to continue praying for them and supporting them, blessing them and encouraging them, for they must feel so distant, so set apart from the life of the church. And so we ask for their encouragement. Lord God, we pray for this community and we ask that as we are present in Ladywell here in Livingston, that you would enable us to bring encouragement and blessing to the people who live around our church building here. Father, we thank you for the community fridge and the way in which we can meet those practical needs of individuals, but we pray that we would get to know our community well, that we would encourage and build up and bless through the sharing of the gospel and the salvation of sinners in this place, that they, like us, need your love and grace. So please, Lord, help us share that love, that grace and that mercy with those around us that this whole community might be blessed as a result of knowing you. Lord God, we pray as well for uh, the wider world and ask that you would continue with the governments of Scotland and of the United Kingdom, with uh, the Prime Minister and the First Minister. Lord, may you bless them with wisdom and may they do what is right for our nation. Lord God, we pray as well for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. We've been thinking this week in our prayer meeting about the church in Pakistan and the persecution that Christians so often face because of blasphemy laws there. And Lord, we ask that you would be with our brothers and sisters in Pakistan, that you would build them up and strengthen them, that they might stand faithfully for the gospel and for Christ, that they would not be ashamed that they would not lay him aside for the sake of an easier life. And Father, as we pray those words, we realize how easy we have it here in the UK. Lord, we do not ask for our brothers and sisters to stand for the gospel lightly, but we do pray that they would remain faithful in the face of terrible opposition. And Lord, we pray for the Muslim uh, population of Pakistan, that you would bless them through the presence of the church, that as the church shares the good news of the gospel, the hope of the nations, that Pakistan might be blessed as they hear and respond to salvation that comes in Jesus' name. Lord God, we pray as well for the church in China. And Lord, we've been thinking about the detention camps in China that a great many people have been sent to. Lord, we do not know what goes on in much of that land, but we simply ask that you would preserve your people there, that you would enable them to stand faithfully, and, Lord, that they would share the gospel without fear. And, Heavenly Father, we pray for the government of China and ask that through the presence of the church, again, you would bless that people, that they would rule wisely, Lord, and would consider the responsibility that you have given them and consider that they will have to give an answer for all that they have done, Lord, in the world and within their own country one day. Lord God, we pray that in the end Christ would reign over all. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand how we can play our part in seeing that day come as you send us into the world to be heralds of the good news. Lord, bless us, bless your church, and bless this world through its presence. And Lord God, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this Sunday, we are having two services running at the same time. It's not a skill that you thought I had to be in two places at the same time, but there you go, you just never know, do you? We're having our pre-recorded service, but we're also meeting in our building. This is the first time that a small group of people will be gathering in the building at Cedar Bank uh, to meet for worship since March. It seems crazy to to think that, that we haven't met together in this building for so long. Uh, And yet the pandemic has forced our hand and here we are. It's 
a challenge for us, isn't it, to think about uh, the role and the place of the church in light of the pandemic that's going on, not just in this country, but all over the world. How has this impacted our ministry, our worship, our mission in this place? How has it affected our ability to be with one another, to love each other and serve each other? How has this impacted international mission as countries all over the world with uh, far less well-equipped health services and so on? How have they coped and how will our missionaries in those lands have been able to cope in light of the reduced resources um, spread even thinner as a result of the pandemic and the, the needs felt by everyone at this time? It's tempting for us to view the pandemic as this great evil that is thwarting the plans of God in the world. That's just getting in the way of all that God would do through his church. And yet this is an experience that is not new. We might rightly reflect that this is something that has not happened ever in world history that the world would just shut down almost every economy of almost every country for six months or a slightly shorter period perhaps in order to deal with a global pandemic. There is some novelty about that to be sure. And yet at the same time in every generation there has been some great cataclysmic event that has people questioning about um, what God is doing, about how the church can possibly overcome these circumstances, about how we as individual Christians can possibly cope in the face of all that is going on. It might be the First or the Second World War. It might be wars prior to that, great um, plagues and pandemics, great natural disasters, tsunamis, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions. There are all sorts of things that go on in the world all the time that might have us questioning what on earth the plans of God are in all of this. And are the plans of God coming uh, to an end? Are they not being fulfilled or worked out? Because we cannot conceive of how God could possibly work in the midst of all of this mess. And as we look at Genesis, we should be encouraged that this is very much a question that is asked and is answered in the word of God. We're looking this morning at Genesis chapters 37 and 38 as we begin the really famous story of Joseph in the Bible. I don't know what your uh, recollection of the story of Joseph is. We find from chapters 37 right through to the end to chapter 50 of Genesis, it's all taken up one way or another uh, with the life of Joseph and his family. And yet, this opening chapter that we read this morning, chapter 37, is probably one of the most famous bits of that story that you will remember. It has the coat of many colors in it. And Joseph's uh, traveling down, uh, as a result of being sold into slavery, uh, down into Egypt. And yet, what are we supposed to do with this story? Is it just an interesting story that we can make into musicals and films? Or is there something more to it? Well, there is something more. We find here in this story Moses addressing the problem of evil and the plans of God as worked out through the lives of those that have gone before him. Remember that Israel is gathered uh, in the wilderness before they enter the promised land and Moses is telling them their history to have them understand their place in the world. How on earth God can possibly still be journeying with them. It looks like God has just abandoned them in the desert. There is no promised land for them to go to. There is no way back into Egypt for them. They've just been left with nothing in this wilderness. So who are they and where are they going and how does all of this fit together with God's plans? And we find in this that evil will always try to thwart God's plans. It's not just uh, in a sense that things happen and God is struggling to know how to deal with them. We find that this world saturated in sin, this world constantly pushed along by the devil and his desires to oppose what God is doing, this world will constantly try to run contrary 
to the plans and the purposes of God. Whatever they may be, however good they may be, this world will always try and corrupt, derail, oppose the plans and the purposes of God. And in chapter 37, 1 to 24, we see that. God clearly has plans for the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in this part of Genesis, we find that God clearly has plans for Joseph, who is a part of that family. We find that uh, Joseph is um, pictured in this story as being the most significant member of Jacob's family. We have Joseph having two dreams, um, one after the other, one about sheaves of wheat and the other about stars in heaven, all bowing down to Joseph. The sheaves in the field are representative of Joseph's brothers, and they all bow to him, symbolizing this place that Joseph has over them within the family. The stars and the sun and the moon and the sky do the same and picture the whole family bowing down to him as if Joseph is going to rule over them all. And this isn't right by human standards. It certainly isn't right by the standards of Joseph's day. The eldest brother is the one who has the right to occupy that position. And Reuben is the eldest. And if he's disqualified himself, as Reuben has, we find that it's Simeon and Levi, and yet they've disqualified themselves, so it should by right fall to Judah as the next in line. And we know ultimately that Judah's line will be the one through whom the Messiah comes. But at this point in history, Joseph is the favored son. Joseph is the one that God is going to use, not just to spare his family, but also to bring about the coming of that Messiah through Judah and his line. And so we find that Joseph um, has not just these dreams, but also his father Jacob paints a big old target on his back. He prefers Joseph publicly over his other sons. He gives him this coat of many colors. Now, we might think of it as a multicolored robe. It's likely to be whatever it would have looked like, a royal robe. The robe that you would give to your firstborn to sort of declare him publicly as your son and heir, the one who will rule over your house, especially a house as wealthy as that of Jacob. And so we find uh, that giving this royal robe to Joseph when he isn't the eldest son clearly marks him out as being the most significant, as being, as it were, the firstborn, the one who will lead the family to the shame of all the older brothers. They've all been passed over for the sake of this son. And Joseph, being a young and foolish man, makes sure his brothers know it. He lords it over them. He makes sure that they hear publicly these dreams that he's had and that they see him walking around in this beautiful robe that his father has given him. And we find that entirely understandably, they resent him. They set about trying to kill him and it's only Reuben who shows a bit of decency and convinces them to to rough him up a bit but to chuck him in this pit with the thought in mind, once they've gone, I'll come back and I'll restore him back uh, to my father. But we find that they throw him into this water cistern that's dried up and they take his robe off his back and this beautiful robe is ripped and torn and drenched in blood so that they can show it to Jacob and say, well, a wild animal's killed him. We don't know um, where he was, but clearly he's been eaten by something, and, and that wouldn't have necessarily been an unlikely thing. There were plenty of wild animals in the world at that time. They're trying to deal with this annoying upstart, but in actual fact, what they're trying to do, even though they don't realize it, is thwart the plans of God for his people and for all people of the earth. Now, they have no idea about that, but that is actually what they are doing. They, they, they say, here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him and then tell dad that a wild animal has eaten him and we'll see what becomes of his dreams. They know he's had these dreams, but they're not thinking these dreams come from God. They're simply thinking he's an annoying upstart. But the dreams we read of in the Joseph story all come in twos. The purpose of that is to symbolize that they are dreams that do come from God. This isn't the result of too much wine with a good meal or too much cheese before bed and vivid dreams at night. The purpose of the two and two and two lots of dreams coming together is to symbolize the fact that God is giving these dreams. They are no mere coincidence. 
And so Joseph's brothers come and try, try to thwart Joseph's dreams, but by extension are try, trying to thwart the plans of God. And we can see a parallel here with Jesus. In seeking to do the will of God, those that oppose Jesus first revile him, then condemn him, then imprison him, and then murder him. And you can see that played out in Joseph's life. Evil in the lives of Jesus' opponents seeks to, to thwart the plans of God. They see this one who's come, this upstart, who thinks he's bigger um, than his station in life, have any right to, to confer upon him, and yet um, they, he comes and he preaches, and so they seek to remove him before he can do more damage to their cause. And Joseph's family are exactly the same as the, the Pharisees and the Jews of Jesus' day who seek to oppose and thwart him. The plans of God are being attacked. Like Joseph, Jesus goes before his accusers silently. And everything that needs to be said has been said already and it looks like evil will win the day. It looks like God's plans will be thwarted. Or at the very least, it looks like people are able to oppose God and God has to try and figure out some way around the problem of evil in the world. And we can see that not just in Joseph's day, not just in Jesus' day, but also in our own lives. We sometimes feel that God's plans are being thwarted by a, a global pandemic, by a government who might oppose its citizens becoming Christians or might seek to punish those who would share the good news of the gospel. It might be through a, a much smaller local situation where a church is opposed by the community around it or is constantly dogged with, um, with damage done to the church building or church members attacked or derided online or whatever it might be. We find that that we can experience this personally with our family and perhaps even ourselves are opposed because we are Christians. We find our views being attacked. We find everything being thrown in our path to stop us walking faithfully with God. We can do this to ourselves if we're being honest, can't we? We sometimes question where God is in all that's going on in our lives. How God could possibly bring about or allow these circumstances to unfold. Or we question our place in the world. God has called me into this family of His. He's placed us in this church here in Ladywell. And yet we question whether it's right that we should be here. Whether we could serve God because we don't have any gifts or skills or abilities. Or we don't want to use the gifts we have for the, the, the blessing and the building up of His body. And in all of these things, we're questioning the plans of God. We're opposing, in however small a way it might be, God's plans and his purposes in our lives, in the life of our church, and in the world. We do it all the time. We don't even realize we're doing it. Sometimes we can pull one another apart, can't we? God can't use so-and-so in the church. Or when he does, we find it so irritating that that person keeps having that place or, or um, keeps having all these opportunities when there are more gifted and more spiritual people around and so on. It's so easy to slip into that way of thinking. It's the way of the world. It's the life that we've left behind that still has its little tendrils wrapped around us that causes us to go back to that way of thinking. We've got to be careful when we make judgments about ourselves and about others and about the world around us. We've got to consider carefully our place. And recognize that God is in control. What we want is to be living closely with the Lord so that we don't limit Him. So that we don't think, well, this circumstance has come about and God can't possibly have brought this about because it seems so terrible. God can't possibly work in this situation. How could that ever be? And so limit God. What we want to do is be careful to come before Him in His Word and come before Him in prayer. Humbly submit ourselves and recognize that we don't know it all. And so we should recognize God's place. The temptation for the world is always to reduce God in size, to make Him small, and by extension to make us big, as if we are in control of our own destiny. And what we want as God's people is to do the very opposite. 
as John the Baptist says, we must decrease that he might increase so that we are prepared when difficult circumstances come to recognize the place of God even though we can't see how it's possible for him to be at work in the circumstances in which we live. Evil will constantly try to thwart God's plans. And yet we find in the second section in chapter 37, in verses 25 through to 36, that evil cannot stand in the way of God's plans. And this is a truly wonderful part of the story we read in Genesis from this point right through to chapter 50, and we see in our own day. It looks as if evil's won the day. You look at these callous men, they're willing to discuss murder, murdering their own brother, their own fresh flesh and blood, and then they just sit down and eat their tea. It's, it's astonishing to see the evil, uh, the casual evil that's on display. And then as if by coincidence, although we know there's no coincidence of, um, uh, of the sort, we find this caravan of traders comes along, descendants of Ishmael. Ishmael now pops back into the story, and we remember how Ishmael uh, has caused so much difficulty, not through any fault of his, just by his existence as a son of Abraham. But descendants of his come back into the story, and we find God now using the sons of Ishmael, who stand in the biblical story in opposition to the sons of um, Isaac as the faithful family of God, we find Ishmael now riding to the rescue. God uses the descendants of Ishmael to bring Joseph down into Egypt. And so we find specifically people from the, the family of Midian coming along a well-worn trade route down into Egypt. And Judah, who seems to be the leader of his brothers by this stage, sees an opportunity to not kill Joseph. And so we see a shred of decency coming to the fore. And Judah says, why don't we just sell him into slavery? Okay, it's not much decency, but it's better than murdering their own brother. Because they know that if they kill him, they won't be able to keep it a secret. And so um, they sell him. They trade their brother away for 20 shekels of silver and then they cook up this plan with the goat's blood covering the robe, this torn robe of Joseph to fool their dad. And they dip this once beautiful robe into goat's blood and they take it to Jacob and says, is this Joseph's robe? As if they don't know. The deceit is breathtaking. We just found it in the wilderness. We don't know what happened. And they let Jacob conclude well, he must have been torn apart by wild animals. And they let their father for years be grief-stricken in the belief that his favorite son has been torn apart in you know, not a pleasant way to die in the wilderness. And here we see again a symmetry to the story. It wasn't all that long ago that we were reading about Jacob, the great deceiver of his father finding that he is now subject to deceit by his own children. We find, we, we remember, in fact, the very nature of the deceit um, of Jacob when he goes um, to his father Isaac dressed in the clothes of his older brother Esau. And now he's deceived by clothes of his son dipped in, in goat's blood, not goat's skin on the, on, uh, the arms of his sons, but goat's blood. The robes that were meant to elevate Joseph to a position over his family are now symbols of his death, of his defeat by a bigger and stronger, uh, more numerous enemy. And we see again a mirror of Jesus here at the cross, the image of Jesus' death. It becomes a symbol of his enthronement over the people. It works in the opposite direction to the picture of this royal robe. A picture of the enthronement of Joseph becomes a symbol of his death. So in Jesus, the symbol of his death, the cross, becomes the symbol of his enthronement over all. Bigger. Stronger, more numerous enemies than him, the people of his day, Satan, sin, death, appear to defeat Jesus, and yet we find are in turn defeated by him. Evil cannot stand in the way of God's plan because whatever sinful people intend, we find God intends those same actions for good. And this is so important for us to understand, especially when we are struggling, especially when we are suffering and wonder how God could ever allow these circumstances to be borne out in the, the lives of uh, my family or my church or my nation. 
How could God allow this? Well, we find whatever the world intends for evil, and it does intend these things for evil, God intends the same actions, but for good. And we're going to read here that the brothers sell uh, Joseph into slavery down in Egypt. He's taken to the captain of Pharaoh's guard um, and is, is set to work in his household as a slave, not as a free servant, as a slave. This is a dreadful evil, to sell someone against their will into slavery, to talk about killing him, but to sell him into slavery. But we find Joseph reflecting back on this in years to come, and we'll come to this as we come to the end of Genesis in in a few months' time. And he reflects on this and recognizes that his brothers fully intended evil in his life. And yet God fully intended these painful actions, actions which led to him languishing in slavery and in jail for years. Not pleasant things, but God intends all of that for his own good purposes. And we find that through this, God will save tens of thousands of people from starvation. So Joseph had to endure pain at the desire of God, but so that a far greater good could come about. Unless we think that somehow this is unique, we again see Jesus pictured in this story, where Jesus goes and endures the agony of the cross, however difficult Joseph's life was, however painful our lives might be when we see our lives or the lives of our family or friends or church um, being damaged by sin, however harsh and awful an experience that might be for us, the death of the Son of God on the cross makes all of that pale into insignificance. It's a far more terrible thing. It is the greatest sin that has ever occurred in the history of the universe. And God intended it for the blessing of a people from every tribe and tongue and nation, a number of people too great for us to count. This is what God does. He sees a world that is corrupted and sickened and damaged by sin, and he uses all of that to bring about a glorious, perfect and holy end. He truly draws gold out of dross, and he does it intentionally, purposefully. And so we must remember that, that Joseph does not turn to hatred of God, that he feels God has betrayed him and abandoned him. Surely he struggles with those feelings all the way through those difficult years, and yet at the end he recognizes God has done it all for the good of his people. And Moses is telling Israel that to help them understand that we have left Slavery in Egypt, we're languishing in the wilderness, facing starvation and drought almost every single day. And yet, out of this difficulty, the evil of slavery, the hardship of wilderness wildering, God is bringing about a greater, more glorious end for our people. And ultimately, it points to Jesus, though they perhaps cannot see that yet at that time. God thwarts evil by bringing about his plans and his purposes, the fulfillment of his plans and purposes through those same actions that are intended for evil by this world and the people in it. And it's astonishing to see that. And it is a great comfort to us to recognize that however hard our circumstances are right now, God will use these things to effect a far greater and more glorious end. And so we persevere in the hope that even if we won't see that great glorious end come, someone will, our children, our spiritual children uh, within the church, will one day see the greater good worked out. And even though we will not see it now, we will recognize it in glory when we look back and see that God was in control of it all. So we find in Genesis 37 that evil will try and overcome God's plans, but evil cannot thwart. God's plans. And in chapter 38, we find that evil will ultimately be overcome through God's plan. We have a break from the story of Joseph for no apparent reason um, and spend some time with Judah alone out of all the other brothers. And we recognize, although Moses may not have understood the significance of that, that Jesus will come as a result of Judah's line. And it turns out that Judah is a pretty poor character. 
He's colluded with his brothers to get rid of Joseph. Now we find him marrying a Canaanite, which they've been told they really ought not to do. We find him lying, cheating, and using a prostitute, and then hypocritically trying to punish her for what she has done, despite the fact that he has treated her as a prostitute in the first place. It is truly astonishing how deplorable Judah's character is at this point. He's no better than any of his other brothers. And yet we see again in the life of someone who is quite wicked, God drawing out something which is good that can be used for his plans and purposes. We find his two eldest sons earn God's condemnation and are killed by God, which tells you how focused God is in carrying on the line, the seed of the woman from Adam and Eve through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Judah. Anyone who threatens to stop God's plans is removed completely as Er and Onan, uh, Judah's sons are, because he only has one son left, Custom dictates that he marry Tamar, the former wife of the firstborn heir, and Judah promises Tamar um, that this will happen. She won't be cast out um, to her and to Judah's shame. But when Shelah comes of age, he holds him back for fear that Shelah might die as well, like his other brothers have. And Judah's line will end. So Tamar takes actions into her own hands and poses as a prostitute at Anayim. Which means the opening of the eyes, which is ironic given that Judah doesn't recognize this person. And as Judah is going by, he hires her for the price of one goat. And you can again notice that the deceit that's taking place involving a goat, again indicating this special nature of what's going on, this theme keeps going on from the life of Isaac and um, through the life of Jacob and Esau and the life of Joseph and again in the life of Judah. We see, um, looking forward through Scripture, that um, the child that is going to come about as a result of this sinful um, action will ultimately give rise to the coming saviour of the world. This woman is um, is going to give birth to one who will defeat all sin, despite the fact that sin has played such a massive role in his family. And Jesus will come. And in the end, John tells us in chapter 1 of his gospel that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we now see something of the fullness of that meaning. Jesus knew no sin, but his family line is immersed in sin, saturated by it. He's come from a family of terrible sinners for all that he remains clean, a pure and a fitting sacrifice for the sins of the world. Jesus understands Judah turns from this sinful way of living. He acknowledges his sinfulness. His eyes really were opened as a result of that experience at Anayim. And he sees Tamar's faithfulness to the family of Israel, which almost never happens in the Old Testament when Canaanites come among God's people. And we'll see that he later offers himself as a sacrifice in the place of his youngest brother in the story of Joseph as that runs on, demonstrating the kind of man he's become as a result of God's opening his eyes to recognize how deplorable an individual he has been. And so the question is, do we trust that God, that he will work out in us that which is necessary to bring about his plans and purposes in the world? Look at the range of experiences that um, the family of Jacob go through in order for Joseph to become the saviour of his family, and Judah to ultimately give rise to the saviour, not just of the family of Israel, but of the whole earth. And we sometimes question, don't we, the experiences we have and what on earth God is doing in our lives that he would let us go through difficult times. And yet, look at what happens. Look how their lives are shaped through sinful things, wicked things that that they would wish, I'm sure, looking back on their lives in their old age, they had never done. And yet they were formative in the shaping of their character. It's true of my life. I, I know that from my own experience. Things that have gone on in my life that I wish had never been looking back, that I shudder at the thought of. 
and yet have been formative in shaping me and making me into the person I am now here in this place to fulfill the ministry that God has given me. And so it is for you. It's not our place to to question that. It's our place to recognize that God has taken all of that experience in our life and has used us to make us the people we are now for a purpose, to shape us for a specific ministry amongst a certain people. And our job is to, is to engage in the ministry that God gives us with all of that experience. And when we think about it, and we think about the fact that we are sent as a formerly sinful people, saved by the blood of Jesus to a currently sinful world, it's, it's understandable, it's fitting that we go to the world and say, as you are now, so we once were. And through no goodness in us, God has transformed us by His grace and He can therefore transform you by His goodness and His grace because we were just the same as you. And in so many ways, we still are the same as you. We're not some great and godly people that have deserved the goodness of God. We're just normal. And you're just normal. And yet God can transform your life and make you into his own dear children, that you would know his goodness and his love, salvation from your sins that you can never deal with in this life, just as I could never deal with it in mine. And it all comes around through the coming and the sacrifice of Jesus in our place. And all of that comes around through this sinful little family millennia ago in the land of Canaan. We find that God intends things in our lives that are difficult, that are hard, that are even painful for us to endure. And although the world intends it to hurt us, God intends it for good, for the good of his people, for the good of his kingdom. It's something that Jesus draws on in the pages of the Gospels. And it's something we find that Paul carries on so often into his epistles. This idea that God is constantly working to bring about good for his own people. That God works together all things for the good of those who love him. Not that all things will be good and enjoyable. That all of the experiences we have will be used for the good of his people. And this is how it is worked out. Through the using of those experiences in the ministry God has placed us in. We're going to see Joseph go down into Egypt and use all of those experiences to grow more humble more contrite, more faithful in his service, and as a result, God will elevate him to the highest position in the land under Pharaoh, and he will save tens of thousands of people from starvation, perhaps more hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions, we don't know, all through the experiences he has. It doesn't make it easy for him to go through being sold into slavery by his own brothers. And yet... We find in the end, God's good thwarts the evil that his brothers intended. Evil will constantly try to derail God's work in our lives, in our church, and in our world, but it will not succeed. Evil will never conquer, will never fully and finally triumph, because God is in control. We sing that word sometimes, uh, don't we? God is still on the throne and he will remember his own. Though trials may press us and burdens distress us, he never will leave us alone. His promise is true. He will not forget you. God is still on the throne. Amen. And now as you prepare to go out into this coming week and live for God and serve your king, do so in the confidence that evil will not overcome God or his plans and purposes in your life. He sits over it all. And so let us go with confidence into this coming week as his children, loved by him and saved for his glory. May you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Amen.